What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No Will. Um, will wanted to send this along because he is not hungover, as we previewed he could be as of this recording, which is Sunday morning, eight o'clock. Uh, will said that he is dealing with acoustic issues at his Airbnb. Didn't want to wake up everybody in the Airbnb by recording a podcast. He's got crappy Wi-Fi. He had three different excuses. Um, Will also said that he went to bed at like 10 central last night and he's actually not hungover. So there's our first curveball of the season. Um, but yeah, so I will be flying solo today, which is perfectly fine. Instead of talking about playoff takes and whatnot, um, which we heard on Friday playoff expansion that is indeed happening. I'm going to talk about it at the end of the podcast because I would rather talk about how impressive the Southeastern conference is slash was and how wild opening weekend was in the sec, all the different games I want to get to one thing that I liked about the non three big games that we had on the slates. Holy cow. The sec, as of this recording undefeated recording again, Sunday morning, so before LSU, Florida State, shout out to my guy, Candler. I am currently recording this from his office before I catch a flight back to Orlando. Will is in New Orleans, so we will have a full recap of the LSU, Florida State game in the midweek pod. Wild to think. Wild to think that against FBS teams, the SEC covered the spread in nine of those 10 games. That's how dominant it was. Then it was not a weekend for the Danny Canals of the world. Uh, it was a weekend for the SEC chance to uh, be, be shouted from, uh, I guess, not from coast to coast because the, we didn't really have any of those wild all over the place type of games, but definitely heard it in the swamp. You heard it in a few other places. I think they had it going in Atlanta as well. Um, but yeah, the lone team to not cover the spread against an FBS team this weekend was Ole Miss and they still won by 18 points and we'll get to that game, but we got to start, you know, where we're starting. Hand up. I trusted a Pac-12 favorite, and I was wrong to do that. Florida takes down Utah. My Utah Utes, my playoff-bound Utah Utes. I'm kissing that pick goodbye. I have to. I'm man enough to admit when I'm wrong. It was truly a horrendous opening weekend for the Pac-12 in general. For as great as the SEC was, that's kind of how bad it was for the Pac-12 between Utah and Oregon. Yikes. Unbelievable game. And the exact type of game that Florida fans could have hoped for. And I am happy for Gator fans. I was texting with my buddy Drew at the end of it, like kind of in, in the second half or going back and forth. And none of us really knew who was going to win. And I, I think even, you know, Florida fans kind of saw the way that that momentum shifted in this game. And there was some very obviously I think key moments that that swung the game in Florida's favor, most notably, of course, the Amari Bernie interception, which happened after the Ventrell Miller dropped interception. If they had, if, if Utah had won that game and Ventrell Miller, after the year that he just had being out and he comes back for, for this year uh, to, to solidify the middle of that defense, if Florida had lost that game as a result of not being able to get a stop after that that dropped pick, that would have just weighed so heavily on him, I'm sure. So I'm glad that to, that he got a little bit of a uh, little bit of help from from one of his friends. Of course, I was dead wrong on one specific thing because this game actually went really similar to how I thought it was going to go. Utah was who, who I thought it was, very much so. Florida was also in many ways, but Florida's defense rose to the occasion so much even though you could tell they were gassed at the end of it, man. They really, really were not sure about the depth. I don't, I, I don't really know that we got to see too much of that in, in a opening game against a team like Utah. We'll, we'll kind of wait and see how that plays out, but they have some dudes up front. They absolutely do. And it was great to see Ventro Miller back. That goal line stand was so crucial when Utah's down one, I have no idea how Utah did not find its way into the end zone on that drive. Florida defense really hasn't had a moment like that, or at least it hasn't felt like they could do something like that against a quality opponent since 2019. I mean, really think about it. Even in 2020, that defense, of course, as we know, worsens the Woodrow Wilson administration. The other crucial moment, of course, Napier calls timeout after letting the clock bleed down, trailing, facing fourth down. I don't know if we can fully grasp the cojones that takes in that moment 
to not want to pull the trigger, give yourself as many chances as possible. Be thinking to yourself, hey, we have two and a half minutes left. We don't want to necessarily be like, oh, hey, if we don't get this, it's over. If they didn't get that, it's over. But when you have Anthony Richardson, you can do that. And everybody was uh, on social media was blasting Billy Napier, which if you're a coach in your your debut, that's, I mean, get used to it. That, that's going to happen. And we would have absolutely played the results had that not worked out in Florida Saber and said, wow, they could have given themselves another chance. But instead, they pick it up. Anthony Richardson leads the go-ahead drive. He was electric as expected. The two-point conversion where I, I don't know how he didn't fake out the cameraman on that too. Where he like It's like a, a fake jump throw. It would have been traveling in basketball, but it's not. That's good. Just silly. I don't know how he didn't go down. He made that run look so easy. The 45-yard the run that he had uh, when Utah really wasn't defending against the run at all. They kind of made that the crucial mistake of having their backs turned on that he Richardson made one dude miss. And when you're that fast and you look that natural as a runner, that's all it takes. That play right there will be on film because so many defenses moving forward will say to their guys, we, we need to spy him. There's there's, you can't have that happen in a crucial moment of the game where you don't have anybody that's accounting for him. Even if it's a linebacker that we know Anthony Richardson can outrun, you at least need somebody there to force him out of bounds or something like that. And you cannot give him all of that green grass because boy, does he eat it up in a hurry. If he's going to beat you on a keeper within the flow of the offense, that's one thing. Like if Anthony Richardson's going to hurl dudes and stiff arm dudes and run by them. Okay. You'll give him that one. There's, there's not really a whole lot you can do to defend that, but you cannot turn your back on him and let you beat him like that. When the play breaks down, Richardson looks like he has developed a lot. I think with those reads, we talked about all off season, still a few that he left on the table. I thought Dan Orlovsky, even though he frustrates me in the broadcast, I thought he did a good job of pointing out some of those spots where he could have taken that chance. It was there on the RPO really had a lot of high percentage throws for him. He didn't necessarily gamble in the ways that you you wondered if he would against a defense like that. He didn't make that catastrophic mistake. And that was key when rising did. It was rising who, you know, I, I talked him up all off season. I still think he's a phenomenal player. And I still think he had some great moments in this game, but you're down three points. You're down three points on the road. And I get it. You got to go for, for the win. But man, that was a, a chance where... I, you can't you can't necessarily take that. We play the results. Utah could have settled for a field goal, forced overtime, and instead they force a pass in, the, in traffic. That's the risk when you work the middle of the field the way that Utah does. We know that they love to target those tight ends, man. It felt like every single time he dropped back to pass, he was looking for Keithy. Every time Dalton Kincaid had a big play on that last drive too. But Florida comes away with a win somehow, some way. It was really fun just to watch this offense kind of find its its rhythm a little bit. And I don't want to overreact to this too much, but man, Richardson with regular reps was what Florida fans could have hoped for. Napier said afterwards that his wife could call plays for him. He's that good. Uh, clearly, he's trying to downplay things and I'm trying to downplay things for Florida to a certain extent, because I do think the grind of an SEC schedule will be a challenge. You don't want those expectations getting too all over the place. I'm not suddenly saying that Florida's about to go 10 and two with, with Napier, but that was really encouraging early in the season. I do think Florida fans have every right to appreciate how hard fought of a win that was against a rock solid Utah team that I still think is going to win a ton of games this year, but that atmosphere was second to none. The swamp when it's rolling, man, it is still such an intimidating place to play. And even though I mocked the spread all summer and I said, how is Utah only a two and a half point favorite, man, they, they showed me exactly why that was the case. Think about the, when was the last time that Florida beat a team that good? 2020 Georgia game when there was nobody there in Jacksonville. They couldn't even have a packed house there because of COVID. It's been a minute since Florida fans got to take pride in their team and the way that they did on Saturday night. And I think they should soak that in for, for all it's worth. And that's... That, that's fun to to get a highly anticipated game like that and to see your team respond in that way. It didn't feel fluky or anything like that. It felt like two teams truly battling. Just keep those expectations in check. Just be happy that in a fantastic barometer game, your team showed 
that it's not the pushover that it was last year. We would be talking about moral victories if Utah had converted a touchdown there. We we probably would. And I would have probably tried to tell Florida fans, hey, I was I was really impressed with what we saw for 60 minutes of this team, which is not perfect. I, just, I still think they have room to go in the passing game. And I still think they're going to have some issues on the defense. But what an opening statement that was from Florida. I was so locked into this game, true story that I was the last person in the press box at Mercedes-Benz because I didn't want to miss any of this game. I just didn't. It was that good. Lived up to the billing. Florida fans, call me out. I was wrong. Picked Utah. That's okay. You've got yourself a, a head coach who looks like he knows what he's doing, and he got himself off to a really, really encouraging start. Okay, number 11, Oregon. Um, can we throw that 11 away? <laughs> because, man, by the second quarter against Georgia, that was an afterthought. Good Lord, man. That felt like the last time I was at a game at Mercedes-Benz, which was the 2019 Beach Bowl, Oklahoma LSU. Different circumstances, of course. This was probably a slight notch below that, but you were very quickly aware of who the dominant team was and why this was not really a matchup of top 10, top 15 type teams. Stetson Bennett having nothing but touchdown drives, <laughs> essentially a perfect game. He was lights out. That was the best I have seen him play. And I don't even think it was that close. Career high in passing yards. Lad McConkey was a boss. Kenny McIntosh hit the century mark as a receiver. All bang the drum team member. Todd Munkin, anything he wanted, anything he wanted, he just took. Didn't matter. I love that on that opening drive, Georgia comes out and you've got all, all this crowd noise. And it's it would be very easy for for Munkin in that moment to to want to play that up. And I think the crowd was probably about 80, 20 Georgia, Georgia fans. Oregon fans actually showed up pretty well, I thought, all things considered. But you have you probably feel like you have guys who are fired up. They're ready to go. You want to come out and you just want to be this physical run dominating team that we've seen Georgia be so often in the past. You want to take that pressure off of Stetson Bennett after the offseason they've had. And Munkin just says, no, 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 no. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come out in 12 personnel. We're going to get Darnell Washington involved. We're going to get, we're going to see how they defend Brock Bowers. And we're going to let them, let them have all of these thoughts confirmed about what they've been hearing about our tight ends. Because they are weapons. They absolutely are. And then Stetson just found everyone. Everyone. He even had the one touchdown where he spun around and he hit Ladd on a play that looked more like Bo Nix than Stetson Bennett. <laughs> I mean, when he when he did that, that's that that's when you realize how comfortable he is. I was impressed in every single way. Think about this. Say what you want about the the Bo Nix stuff. Oh and four. Teams have been outscored 131 to 33 against Georgia. He finished with the under on the 4.99 yards per attempt. 4.68 was what he finished at. It was maybe the most overmatched Bo Nix yet. Say what you will about all that stuff. Think about this. Georgia had 15 guys drafted, in case you haven't heard. Five defensive players in round one. Outside of Stetson, Christopher Smith, it's actually a pretty quiet game from the household Georgian names, at least the, the, the guys who, who get the national buzz and somewhere. Somebody said, Lad McConkey's a household name. Yeah, he will be in time if he's playing like that. Cause dude looked ready to roll. Nolan Smith, Jalen Carter had three combined tackles, nothing earth shattering. Didn't have one of those jaw dropping type plays. Brock Bowers, he was involved in the opening drive and it was still out there for significant reps, but two catches for 38 yards, pretty quiet game. It was Malachi Starks and Darnell Washington who made the plays of the day. That Starks interception with him twisting was ridiculous. Actually felt bad for Bo Nix on that one. Uh, the Christopher Smith one where he just jumps the route, not so much. But seeing Starks, a true freshman, have body control like that when we're asking, okay, who, who's going to be the corner opposite of Keely Ringo? Who's going to be the guy that isn't necessarily a total liability that, that just gets picked on all the time? You make a play like that in season opener, that kind of changes what people think about you. The Darnell Washington catch, run, and hurdle. He's six seven. <laughs> I don't know where Darnell Washington, what, what kind of water that dude drank growing up, 
but he is quietly the most underrated freakazoid on this team. And I say freakazoid, even though Dan Orlovsky said that about six times on the Florida broadcast. And I was tired of hearing him say that. Um, but Darnell Washington is that guy. He is. He looks phenomenal. Seeing him healthy out there, that changes what Georgia is capable of. And they're just going to run 12 personnel like all season. Oscar Delp got out there. Uh, Eric Gilbert got out there, was only doing a little bit of, I think he was doing some run blocking on the edges, but not a lot of high involvement from from those two. But when you have Bowers and Washington playing at that level, it's just, it's such a different dynamic that Georgia has because you can line up in some of these bunch formations and Georgia still spreads teams out so unbelievably well. And nobody could really tell what they're doing. They can disguise what they're doing very well because it doesn't necessarily tip the hand. It's not like they're rotating tight ends and you come in and, oh, it's because it's Washington. That means it's run play. And, oh, because it's Bowers, it means it's pass play. Munkin just is going to use these guys in so many ways to, to get looks and use them as, as decoys because they are worthy of taking up that kind of attention. Kirby said that he told Dan Lanning afterwards, remember that storyline that I said, you know, Dan Lanning is going to keep Georgia at bay in the first half because he knows a few tricks. No, no, no. That Kirby said afterwards that they had a pretty good idea of what Dan Lanning was going to try and do to combat the way that Georgia was going to come out. And instead it looked very clearly like Georgia was the team that was one or two or three steps ahead. Kirby told Lanning afterwards to hang in there. Georgia had better players, which, Kirby admitted that's partially because of Lanning's doing because Lanning recruiting some of those guys. So Dan Lanning had nobody to blame but himself for that loss. No, I'm kidding. It's wild to think that this team has been able to, to have that level of talent still rotating in the door. 122nd in percentage of returning defensive production. And they look that good. And then a lot of touchdown. It looks different than it used to with Georgia. I'll say that in some ways. And for the ways that I described with, with the passing game and all that stuff, and just the way that they kind of stop teams and the way that they suffocate them, Oregon had more rushing yards in Georgia. <laughs> Did not matter. Who cares? Doesn't matter in the slightest bit. But that's not the way that this game is played anymore. And Georgia has adapted to that. Georgia just stretched Oregon out and got such great separation to where they, they felt like they were picking and choosing all of their options. Stetson wasn't necessarily getting pressured credit to Georgia offensive line. A.D. Mitchell's making plays. Georgia wasn't having these, these costly drops. You know, they, they, they made plays for their quarterback and it very much looked like a 2021 level beatdown in terms of the, the overall result and, and whatnot. But I think we saw the new identity of this team start to shine with how well they played in the passing game. It wasn't just about field position and turning the ball over. I can't remember one time where I thought to myself, oh, Georgia's got great field position, so this is going to really benefit the offense. No, they, they just kind of march up and down the field, do their thing, and take care of business and find a bunch of different guys. Georgia's offense is going to be fun. It is. And I knew, I, I knew that they were going to be better and they were going to have to be better because Georgia's defense, while impressive in week one, it, it's still going to regress. It's going to. You can't be that good in two consecutive years. Kirby hasn't had two consecutive top 10 defenses at Georgia. And I'm not saying that this will definitively be that one, but it certainly looked, looked the part in week one. I just think that this was exactly the, the type of we are still very much one of the three national championship type of games that, that Georgia is capable of. And uh, obviously you get a ton of time to be able to prepare for this. We'll wait and see kind of the way this plays out for, for teams defending Georgia's offense, which should in theory have a whole lot of momentum, a lot of different elements to it, a lot of different elements that we probably didn't even see that much. And that's a, a very, very scary thought against what we thought was going to be an experienced Oregon defense. And that was not the case. Georgia, avoids any notion of a 2020 LSU comp. I was asked uh, by, by Jacob Esther on, um, on Sirius XM the other day, who's the SEC team, SEC team that has the most pressure to win week one. And I said, Georgia, just because if you, if you start off that loss after the, the off season that's been, and then we start talking about championship hangover and, and whatnot. And now it's kind of comical to look back and think that that was actually a possibility and the spread was as low as it was. 
Georgia is very much for real and very much going to have a chance <clears throat> to repeat as national champs, um, even if it is just one game. Okay, Cincinnati and Arkansas. Somebody get Sam Pittman some cold beer. <laughs> Great post game moment from the boss hog himself. Dude had to sweat that one out. He deserved a nice cold one after that. So many new faces for Cincinnati, and it, it didn't really matter. But the difference in that game against a pesky Cincinnati team that would not go away. Arkansas is KJ Jefferson and Cincinnati doesn't. No offense to Ben Bryant, who had his moments in this game. But KJ is so difficult to bring down. And even when you see those moments, like when it's third and nine and there's four minutes left, Arkansas is up a touchdown and KJ just finds a way to scramble and move the chains and take another few minutes off. And he's just always doing stuff like that, where you think to yourself, we have him defended. We have an exact plan for him. And his floor is just so high because of what he's able to do as a runner. So I, I was really impressed, obviously, with the way that he came out and the trust that he had in his other receivers, which was such a popular topic of conversation throughout the offseason, and understandably so in a post Traylon Burks world. I, I just think that 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 the things that he does, even when the play breaks down, is fun now. And he's developing that confidence. The jump pass, I think, was schemed. I think that was schemed by Kendall Bryles. If you didn't see it, had a nice little Tebow-esque jump pass uh, to, to Trey Knox, who had himself a whale of a game. Was really happy for Trey Knox. He's been the breakout candidate forever. Year four, was recruited to play in a different system. Stuck it out. Moved from receiver to tight end. Got the pet smart NIL deal, of course. You get to see what he's capable of when you get him on the edge and into space. And you see why that guy has some very extraordinary abilities at the tight end position with the speed that he has. It seems to be a theme for a lot of these guys in the SEC this year. A lot of a lot of tight ends that just run like, like receivers and you will forget the way that they line up that they are capable of, of breaking off a long touchdown in the way that Knox did in a key moment in that game. Kendall Bryles needs to continue to find ways to get him those touches because as we continue to ask these questions about Arkansas pass catchers, which I do think we will ask those questions, his emergence would be a welcome sight. That was also the exact type of uh, Jaden Hazelwood catch you needed to see where it's not going to be great separation. You're, you're, it's, it's not necessarily going to be a situation where He's 30 yards downfield and he's got two steps on a guy. You know, he's he's not necessarily that player. Matt Landers is maybe that that style of player more so. But KJ trusting Hazelwood to make the right adjustment on the football in traffic, that play that was near the pylon, that's that's crucial for this team. I was encouraged by the Arkansas defense, though I hated, absolutely hated seeing Jalen Catalan leave again. I hope he's not turning into a Bob Sanders type where he's so special, but the way that he plays the safety position, he's just always at a risk playing downhill like that. He's just thinking to himself, man, he's banged up again. I, I hope this is not one of those cases because they need him. Arkansas needs him. And you see it on the back end. They struggle when he's not there over the top. They really do because as great as he is coming downhill and making a play and blowing up a play in space, it's also so good in coverage. And they, they need him if they're going to maximize their potential. But love seeing Drew Sanders, the Alabama transfer, get into the backfield. One thing that I didn't realize this, I didn't realize, we got a lefty fist pump after the sack from Drew Sanders. We need more of that in college football. Lefty fist pumps. Even if you're not a lefty, just throw it in there. Everybody's looking for their unique celebration or whatever. Lefty fist pump is the way to go, man. Drew Sanders, I think he's going to be doing that a lot this year. Need more of that. Really nice win for Arkansas, even though Cincinnati, maybe by the time people are listening to this, maybe they'll have fallen out of the top 25. I don't know. I don't really care. That win was why I feel more confident about Arkansas than AM. Talked about it. I think they're the third best team in the SEC. They're the second best team in the SEC West. I know who this Arkansas team is. They have things that they can do when a game gets tight. If Cincinnati was playing against AM in that game, I don't know what AM would have turned to late. I really don't. They turned to the ground game, which really struggled in the first half and was such a liability. And would they turn to Haynes King to make some of these, these tough decisions? I, I I don't know. I they Arkansas knows who they are. They know how to scheme to their strengths. 
I don't know that AM does that at all. And when you still, when you see, we're not going to talk about AM because it was an FCS game, but when you still see Haynes King making those freshman mistakes on deep balls in a double coverage, you're just like, buddy, I don't know what people were seeing when they ranked him in their top five to start off the year. And they started off number six, but there are a lot of people saying that they were worthy of the top five. Um, we'll wait and see about that and how that plays out. I should have said that at the top of the podcast, by the way, that we won't be talking about the FCS games. We're going to stick to just the FBS games uh, that the SEC teams played uh, on Saturday and Thursday as well. Uh, so we will not be doing a full breakdown of a and We'll talk a little bit more about them uh, in the midweek pot, as well as Auburn, as well as Vandy, who, I mean, offensively speaking, good Lord, just a juggernaut. Mike Wright, he's got the juice, uh, but it'll be a tricky test next week for Arkansas against South Carolina. Okay, let's do one thing I liked. The one thing I liked from, we're going to go back all the way to Thursday, Ball State, Tennessee, uh, the Brew McCoy involvement, the USC transfer. I know it was only, you look at the box score and you're like, involvement, what are you talking about? Three catches, 42 yards, five targets. He, he had a whirlwind college career. We're well aware of that. Very well documented issues that he had getting eligible. Didn't find out he was going to be eligible until August 26. Uh, they get the NCAA waiver. Go figure that the NCAA was actually quicker to respond than USC was. He was a fixture of that offense early and often. He really was. There was one play where this was probably Hendon's worst throw of the night. High risk play to the left sideline. The exact type of play where if you're facing a good team, they can they can turn that into a pick six, and that's a costly mistake that you just cannot have. But instead, McCoy takes this looks like a 50 50 ball that could have gone the other way, and McCoy just plucks it out of the air, turns up field, and gets a nice gain out of it. You see that ability. He was a five star recruit for a reason, no doubt about it. It's wild that this is year four for him, year four of school after he went back and forth between USC and Texas early in his career, and has just never really been able to find his footing. Only one real season of college action for him. This is somebody who could have played linebacker at the college level. And you get where you get reminders of that kind of watching him and his skill set. He plays the position in an extremely physical way. And he plays in in a it's it's not quite like it's it's a little bit like Jaden Hazelwood. And I think what we're going to see from the Arkansas transfer as well. But Hooker needs a guy like that. He really does. It, I, I, he didn't necessarily have that type of guy that go to target that plays in that sort of style. Cause don't get it twisted. Love Cedric Tillman. Absolutely love Cedric Tillman. He's one of the five best receivers in all of college football. And he had a nice week one game, but I still think that it's a little bit different to have that guy that you can just say, you know what? You got single coverage. I'm just going to, I'm just going to trust you. You're going to go make a play, make the right adjustment on the football, go make a play. Finding that number two receiver opposite of Tillman is really important popular topic of discussion. Tillman's still awesome. He's going to check those boxes. Jalen Hyatt has been the most obvious candidate. We talked about him in the offseason. He comes out, gets the touchdown, first play from scrimmage for Tennessee, which couldn't have started that game in a, in a better way uh, with the pick six and then to come out um, or to have the interception that felt like a pick six, essentially. And then they come out and they get a touchdown on, on that very first play there. Tennessee, of course, always going to score in that opening drive, no matter what, doesn't matter where they take over from. Um, I, I thought McCoy though, was more of a revelation with how involved he was in the first half. Kind of wondered about that with some of these guys who get late eligibility and then the coach says afterwards, they're still working through conditioning issues or something like that. No, he's ready to go. Amazing. year four. He should be ready to go. This is his opportunity. You're playing in a high powered offense was really encouraging to see how good he looked from the jump. I was reading a story from, from Wes Rucker about what Tillman told McCoy when he found out that he was eligible and Tillman told him, let's eat. That's my guy. Perry's go-to phrase with, you know, an F bomb slipped in there, but LFE is his, his trademark phrase, but just let's eat. Nothing, no, nothing more needs to be said than, than hearing your boy is eligible. Then let's eat, let's go to work. Uh, I think Tennessee fans would love it if McCoy was hungry and if he feasted in this offense, which he is very capable of doing. Okay, Louisiana Tech against Mizzou, the other Thursday night game, a couple of Thursday night blowouts after it was a pretty close game to start off. Thing that I liked, Luther Burden, the emphasis. Not necessarily just the package, but the emphasis, the need to get him touches. I don't know that I loved all of his touches, but I love that Eli Drinkwitz 
clearly made it a priority to get the five-star receiver involved. He had 44 snaps out wide, five snaps in the slot, three at Wildcat quarterback, and then one in line, two scores in his college debut. He had a pretty bad drop that led to an interception and he kind of struggled to get separation downfield, but that's okay. That's, that's fine. That's kind of to be expected when you're having that much reliance on a true freshman receiver. That's why drink wanted to manufacture those touches. He didn't want to necessarily leave it up to him getting separation, which is still going to be an adjustment for him as great as that ability is. I don't know that you can assume burden will always find a way to fake out four defenders on a crossing route to the short side of the field in the red zone, <laughs> but it was great to see that he was capable of doing that against Louisiana tech. I don't think that he has a limited route tree as well, which is also something that Mizzou needs. You need to have that guy getting looks in a variety of ways and have somebody at the top of the defensive scouting report each and every week. That play was really impressive. I, I kind of just overlooked that. You see the ability. He looks different than any Mizzou player in recent memory, really. I mean, I don't think that's too much to say. That, that is just extraordinary talent that he has. He's going to be heavily targeted and featured in this offense, even though it does look like it's going to end up being a lot more run heavy. But maybe run heavy with two guys, Cody Schrader, Nate Pete. They both had really solid debuts for Mizzou. Um, the two transfers, Schrader coming from Truman State and AP coming from Stanford. But I'm glad for Mizzou fans because as long as Burden is healthy, as long as he's healthy, he's a guy that can make something out of nothing. And he's only going to get better at making those plays downfield. I think those eventually that connection will be there with Brady Cook and they'll figure out ways to get him those looks deep downfield in the passing game as well. Troy and Ole Miss. One thing I liked, Zach Evans. You know, I didn't like the quarterback decision. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I wish Will was on this pod because we would just talk about how frustrating it is that Lane Kiffin is doing the Jim Harbaugh. I thought Lane would, instead of saying that he's going to have Jackson Dart start week one, Luke Altmeyer start week two, I thought we were going to see him actually work Luke Altmeyer into the game a lot more instead of the very limited reps that he got. And then, you know, of course, Altmeyer comes in and immediately fumbles the exchange. Not great. Um, he played briefly, but he's going to now get the start in week two. So the quarterback situation isn't really settled. And I would argue that Jackson Dart's play didn't really settle uh didn't settle the quarterback decision because the efficiency wasn't necessarily there, but I like Zach Evans because he looks like the real deal. He really does. That burst is extraordinary. You see him get into the open field and you realize just how special he is. I know he had a fumble, uh, Ole Miss had three second half offensive turnovers. Lane did not like that at all. I didn't like that either. Nick sauce. I thought had a great observation about another thing that Lane didn't like, and this is just kind of what you have to deal with when you have all these new pieces on offense. Jackson Dart handed it off to Evans on the RPO when he had an open receiver and Kiffin was visibly frustrated. So Kiffin calls the exact same play again and Dart holds, 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 and then hits Mingo in the end zone. And it was a play where it looked like he really wanted to keep it. He really wanted to hand it off. And he's like, no, I better throw this football here or else I'm going to be in deep trouble. And then he does and it's a touchdown pass. But I do really like Evans being the, the go-to guy, the workhorse back. Even though Ole Miss, we know, has several capable backs, but Evans, you just need to get that ball to him 15, 20 times per game. I like that he's going to be capable of doing that while Ole Miss pussyfoots with this quarterback situation. I'm not going to say that I'm totally wrong about this until we actually see who starts in week three. I guess week three is going to be the determining factor of who Ole Miss's starting quarterback is going to be. Listen to this quote uh, from Michael Katz about the quarterback situation working through it. This is what Zach Evans said afterwards, very quickly turning into a great quote. Evans said, I think it's helpful because our coach tells us every day, mow your own lawn. You know, I love that. Me personally, I'm going to say, run that ball. We don't need to throw it. Like I said, it's a loaded backfield. I come out with 200, Quinchon 200, Bentley 200, Control 200. I mean, that's a perfect world for me. I don't need a quarterback. <laughs> Close quote. Love it. That's that's what you want your your feature back to say. Zach Evans is fully on board with Ole Miss becoming a service academy. And even if they can find somebody to completely, you know, dominate the passing game, which has been expected with Lane, maybe Ole Miss still ends up being a very run heavy team this year. Miami of Ohio against Kentucky. 
One thing I liked, you know it, Tavion Robinson's involvement. I told you all offseason, we had the man on the podcast. I said, there will be times when you watch him play for the first time and somewhere people will say, wait a minute, I thought that Robinson guy went to the NFL. And I can guarantee you that conversation happened in the Bluegrass State. Guarantee it. Somebody had to say, turn to whoever said that and be like, ah, this is actually a different Robinson. <laughs> like, what? what? That doesn't make any sense. If you didn't know any better, you'd think it was Wando instead of Tavion. Tavion moves so well in space, just like Wandell did. Slippery, they'll call him. That's the word because it's not like a, he's a 4 3 guy, but they had this uh, th- this play action rollout where Levis came back to the left to hit Robinson, whereas nothing special. Maybe you think, you know, like a 15 yard gain on the left sideline after Robinson really sold the run block. But instead of letting his momentum carry him out of bounds, he stops. He turns up field. He gets a convoy of blockers to weave in and out of. Those are the Debo Samuel things in the Rich Scangarello offense that can be utilized because Levis was under center. It looked just kind of like your standard stretch play. We know that Kentucky really wants to be able to use the play action, even without Chris Rodriguez. We'll wait and see how long he's out. It wasn't some wild concept. There really wasn't, but it was kind of, it was almost like Robinson was used like a tight end in that spot where they, they sell the run, sell the run, sell the run, come back to the other side, get the backside um, and, and, and just see what they can do in space. It was almost like what you'd see a tight end used on in a goal line type spot, but the 49er offense utilized stuff like that. And this Kentucky offense will utilize stuff like that with Robinson in the slot. First hundred yard game of his career. How about that? Kids in year four. It's been essentially a power five starter for the last three years. And it's just been one of those kind of steady, more steady guys, not necessarily a high volume guy. I, I really think we could have this season play out where we look back, Robinson, head and hooker. Both, both of them make Virginia Tech fans say to themselves, we had those guys in our offense that we couldn't do anything. That's going to be a really tough pill to swallow for Virginia Tech, especially after they came out and could not beat Old Dominion on Friday nights. And instead, you see guys like Tavion and Hendon in these systems that are just maximizing their skill set. Scheme matters. Absolutely does. It's not just about ability. I thought Robinson had a, an ideal debut for a Kentucky offense. It took a little bit to get going. I mean, it's... 13 to 10 at the break, kind of the slow start that we anticipated. They come out and they get the return for the touchdown and the offense kind of puts their foot on the gas in the second half. That's what you would hope to see. Will Levis stays healthy, even though he did have that one play where he's trying to pick up, trying to, I think it was, is he on the goal line? Is he on the goal line or he's trying to pick up the first down? He's hurdles. And <laughs> exactly what we talked about. He has one gear. Guy has one gear. And he's always going to, he's always going to try and make a play like that. He's not just going to, it's not just going to slide. It might've been fourth down as well. And I think he picked it up, but he plays with that sort of intensity, but more, more important for this team short and long-term is having those connections with those new guys. It looks like between Robinson with between Dane key, the true freshman who's been getting all sorts of buzz and then Barry and Brown, those guys are absolutely ready to contribute. Even if it means, you know, kind of being that, that second fill to Robinson, who I think is going to be the number one target in this offense. And they're going to find all different kinds of ways to be able to scheme him open Utah state, Alabama. (laughs) One thing I liked Bryce Young's new arsenal. Bryce Young changed shoes. He changed receivers. And apparently he even changed his stance on being a runner. And maybe that's what the white cleats were for. I I don't know. I I definitely thought about that. He just wanted to look a little bit faster. He realized that he was going to actually be a runner this year and thought, I should have some white cleats. White cleats that make you look a little bit slow. White cleats, they make you look a little bit faster. He never even hit 50 rushing yards in a game. And he opens against Utah State by hitting the century mark. I mean, unbelievable. The the 63-yard run where he has a little hop at the end of it. His previous career high rush was 16 yards. <laughs> I mean, I we talk about his mobility all the time because he is, in my opinion, like Baker Mayfield. He he runs to throw. He's going to stay behind the line of scrimmage. He wants to let plays develop. He dares you to guard his receivers for four or five seconds, and he trusts that he can find them and have enough poise to deliver an on-target throw. He doesn't usually run like that. He just doesn't. But he 
I mean, looks like he is very comfortable doing that. Maybe that's just having more comfort comfortability in the Bill O'Brien offense. And he doesn't necessarily want to just kind of hang back and take some of those shots. And in a weird way, you can kind of control your own destiny a little bit and kind of get out of bounds or kind of slide and not necessarily have to hang in there and make a big time throw and then worry about, you know, taking a hit as you're getting thrown or something like that, which is apparently supposed to be a penalty. I didn't see it get called. Maybe I missed it. Again, I wasn't able to catch every single second of every single game, but that was supposed to be everybody was talking about that. The NCAA rule where if you hit a guy while he's passing, it's supposed to be a defenseless player, which I don't know. I thought that was football, but apparently it's not. Bryce Young didn't necessarily have to worry about that. There was one one. uh, He did take one targeting hit. I take that back. But still, for the most part, Bryce Young looks like a guy who's very comfortable, relaxed, and not necessarily taking a pounding, which is ideal. And that's the one thing you would worry about if he is going to indeed going to become a runner is the potential hits that he could take there. But we asked the question, what could he possibly do to one-up his Heisman season? Because voters, for whatever reason, need to see that you're even better and you can't just repeat the exact same season that you have because this is a narrative-based award with all these voters. What could he do at the running element? I mean, if he's going to run like that, forget about it. That's that's not fair. Six touchdowns in the opener could have had 10 easily. If we're being 100% honest, they just rolled Utah State. He has all these new weapons too, which we talked about whether or not that was going to take a little bit of time to kind of figure out those pieces. Kobe Prentice stepped up in the slot. The true freshman Saban raved about him in the wake of the JoJo Earl injury. And he, his presence was very much felt. Treshawn Holden, Jermaine Burton, they both had multiple touchdowns with relative ease. I mean, didn't even look like those guys necessarily had to make some superstar plays to be able to, to get separation and for Bryce Young to find them. I know Holden was there last year. He's technically not a new weapon, but he's going to be used a lot more uh, as, a, as, as a second year guy in that offense. Bryce looked like he was having fun. And if he's that relaxed and that comfortable, that's a dangerous, dangerous sight for the rest of the college football world. Don't necessarily expect a year two step back. It was Utah State. I get it. It's easy to have fun when you're up 55 to nothing. I am really excited for Young versus Ewers next week. That's going to be great. Going to be a fantastic game. A lot of cramping. Going to be hot. In case you haven't heard, Texas going to be hot. But it's going to be a lot of fun to watch those quarterbacks battle. Memphis, Mississippi State. One thing I liked, Zach Arnett's defense looked ready to roll. We respect the 3-3-5 on this podcast. That's what we do. Memphis had 29 yards. 29 yards at the half. That's it. Not great. They finished with a more respectable total. But that was, I mean, they pretty much got all the yards with Mississippi State up four touchdowns. Mississippi State actually played complimentary football. All bang the drum team member, Jet Johnson, all over the place. I had a moment watching Michigan State Friday night where Aaron Brule, who transferred from from Mississippi State to the other MSU, Michigan State, he had a big time TFL. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's there because Jeff Johnson is really good. (laughs) And he is the key to that defense now. Um, Mississippi State rolled with that really long delay. Did not matter. Defense still came out firing. Uh, They weren't they weren't necessarily in a spot where they needed to claw back against Memphis. Um, unlike last year, they didn't leave it up to some fluky call on that weird return play that was ruled dead. And then they were still allowed to return for a touchdown. And then they couldn't overturn it. And that was just crap. Mississippi state fans had every right to be upset. Didn't leave it out to chance. Here's something to keep in mind as we talk about the Mississippi state defense, which I think is going to be one of the top three, four units in the sec. It's that good. Keep this in mind. Mike Leach has only coached one team with a top 30 scoring defense, 2005 Texas Tech. That team went nine and three. I'm not saying this Mississippi State team is going to, I'm not saying that they have an eight and four ceiling. I'm projecting them to go eight and four. They could absolutely go nine and three. If they're going to play that well and be that disciplined, again, it's a Memphis team. They got a lot of turnover, same starting quarterback, but they do have a decent amount of turnover. You don't necessarily expect them to be competing for a New Year's Six Bowl or anything like that at season's end, but pretty telling stat. And you saw that kind of play out that we got from uh, Mississippi State's uh, SID. In addition to returning 79.1% of last year's defensive snaps, 17 of their 22 guys on their defensive two deep are in year three in the system. The 335, of course, we respect the 335. 
That experience is going to pay dividends for this team. We get Pac-12 after dark next week. It's going to be awesome. We're going to get to see once again, Mike Leach, late night game against Arizona, a game that just feels very Mike Leach-like returning to his roots, Pac-12 after dark. Mississippi State's defense is for real. If you're sleeping on them, if you're one of these teams that kind of penciled that in as an automatic win coming into the season, if you're an SEC team, you know, a West team, if you're Arkansas, if you're LSU, if you're Auburn, whoever, watch that defense play. Watch the way that they fly to the football. Watch how comfortable they are. And then we'll talk about whether or not Mississippi State's a pushover because I do not think that they are. Georgia State, South Carolina. One thing I liked, Spencer Rattler didn't wilt in a pressure spot. Not a great game from the new South Carolina quarterback. I'll, I'll fully cop to that. Uh, the final score definitely skewed some things. If you just looked at that, you probably said, oh, yeah, South Carolina was comfortable. They covered the spread one by 21. They got the two block punts late to put to put that game away. They were trailing 14 to 12 midway through the third quarter. And it was kind of everything that we had talked about in the preview pod was playing out. And you're thinking to yourself, Sean Elliott, he's on shirt number six. He's looking really comfortable. Maybe Georgia State's going to pull off this stunner. South Carolina just can't really get going. And instead, key drive, key drive of that game. And I, I say this, you know, maybe, maybe they would have been able to figure things out down the stretch, but I still think it was really impressive. But they had a nine-play, 75-yard drive where they finally got the ground game going. And there was the, the go-ahead play to Marshawn Lloyd to find him underneath. Rattler wasn't going to take a chance in the middle of the field and force something, which I still think Spencer Rattler does a little bit too much of that for my liking. Just calling it out. Um, but the two-point conversion as well, where I thought Rattler definitely wanted to throw. And he's backing up, he's backing up, which he was doing for way too much of the night because that offensive line is a problem and not in a good way. It's I shouldn't say it's a problem. It's a liability. And he's backing up and he realizes, all right, I, I can be a football player here. I, I put on this off-season weight for a reason. I can go pick this up with my legs. And then sure enough, physical run doesn't shy away from contact and is able to convert two point, even though in the grand scheme of things in a 21 point game, that's not huge, but those are the little instances that I, I, I want to see that from Spencer Rattler. I don't, I don't care if he's, if he doesn't have a 350 yard passing game with four touchdowns, like this isn't Oklahoma anymore. That's not going to be the weekly thing for Spencer Rattler. He's going to have to win ugly in ways that he hasn't had to at Oklahoma or when you win ugly at Oklahoma, they call for the backup. Because they're not used to seeing that. That's not the way that they're that they're built to be able to win and succeed. And South Carolina is going to have to do some of that. They, they just will. He's going to have some struggles, especially if this offensive line doesn't improve. That offensive line with all those returning starters did not look any better. It just didn't. It looked like the group that kind of struggled for the first two months of last season. Here's what I like about Rattler. His surroundings are very favorable for him to ease into this. It's a little bit like Will Levis last year and not, not the same sort of hype. I get that, but you're going to get the benefit of the doubt from the home fans in a totally different way than you would at Oklahoma because those expectations are different. I think even South Carolina fans who were hoping that Radler would look perfect and it wouldn't be 14 to 12 halfway through the third quarter. I think even those fans can admit he's, he's going to need a little bit of time. He's going to need some time because it's an adjustment to play behind an offensive line that doesn't just give you clean pocket after clean pocket. The good news is that Beamer ball will just give you block punt touchdown returns after block punt touchdown returns. So he's got that working in his favor. Don't necessarily know that you can rely on two special teams touchdowns like that every single week, but nonetheless, still very favorable uh, surroundings for Spencer rather just in terms of easing him in. And who cares if he's trending on Twitter you know, when you wake up on Sunday morning and there are people that just want to dunk on him because that's what they're going to do. But this is truly a block out the noise type situation for him. And they're going to have to find creative ways to win. Seeing Jaheim Bell involved that heavily in the run game where, you know, I saw that Ben Portnoy had the quote earlier about saying that that Satterfield would give Jaheim Bell 15 carries if he could handle it. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. I know Jaheim Bell is super versatile. He's still a tight end. Why are you? Why do you need to scheme up those types of creative looks for him? Can't you get some sort of momentum in the running game with Lloyd, with McDowell, within the flow of the offense that just makes you actually feel like your offensive line kind of gets some mojo going instead of kind of scheming all these creative looks 
for different players to get involved. I, to me, that's a little bit troubling. And to see Bell involved in the running game the way that he was. But still, I like the fact that Spencer Rattler did not necessarily panic. He gets to celebrate a win instead of having everybody talk about, wow, what a failure, what a bust in a week one loss, which we knew was possible for Sean Elliott. It's never impossible for Sean Elliott. Instead, he gets a a feel-good victory. And now he's going to have a really tough test against that Arkansas defense. Okay, LSU, Florida State in New Orleans. I'm going to predict some headlines. I'm going to predict some headlines because, again, recording this on Sunday morning. If you're, if you're listening to this on Monday and you're just going to be able to say, wow, you're an idiot. How would you not know what you were talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to feed that right to you. I'm going to give you the alley-oop so you can dunk on me. All right, I'm going to do that. Brian Kelly dances his way out of the collapse with debut victory against Florida State. Yeah, emphasis on the dancing, of course. Bayou beatdown. LSU trounces Florida State to kick off Brian Kelly era. That's not my best. I can do better than that. Big easy W. Kelly leads LSU to debut win over Florida State. We're going to have debut somewhere worked in there with Brian Kelly. That's the way that it is. But I do think that LSU will win this football game. And if you're listening to this on Monday and if LSU has already lost by this point, then just fast forward through this part, pretend that I didn't say it. We did a full breakdown of that the other day with our usual over-unders with our picks and whatnot. So go back and listen to the preview pod if you want to see how wrong I was uh, beforehand. But we'll have, we'll have a more in-depth recap of the LSU game, which Will is at. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that in the midweek pod um, to, to get a feel for what this LSU team looked like in week one. The playoff expansion, uh, it, it did indeed happen. And in the midst of a wild weekend to kick off college football season, we got news going from 4 to 12 as early as 2024. But nah, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Adam Rittenberg reported that 2025 could more be, be more likely than 2024. Then Sankey comes out, says he'd be surprised if it happened before 2026, which Again, we know that the contract runs through 2025. We'll wait and see kind of how this thing plays out. But here's what we do know. Six highest ranked conference champs automatically qualify. You're going to have six at-large teams complete the field as well, the field of 12. You're going to have the four highest ranked conference champs get those first round buys. And we're going to get those first round home playoff games, which is going to be awesome. That's so great to see that we're going back on what the original proposal was for this 12 team playoff. And we're going to get to actually see these college campuses host playoff games. I mean, think about how cool that that is going to potentially be for all the, the talk about this is going to ruin the regular season or whatnot. Think about what it would mean if your team was playing like Ole Miss last year. So for example, Ole Miss and the Egg Bowl last year would have been playing in that game to try and host a home playoff game. And they would have. I mean, that that is something that your fans will get to appreciate forever. Seeing that, that playoff logo on your field and realizing that you're on the path to a national championship. I mean, for programs like Arkansas, Mississippi State, Kentucky, Mizzou, Ole Miss, South Carolina, like these teams, even A&M, who, I mean, the barrier to entry for the college football playoff has been the fact that they compete in this in this really difficult league and getting to an SEC championship is not an easy thing to do. Uh, those programs, like a lot of them have had top 12 finishes in the last decade. And all of a sudden you're going to have, we're going to be talking about, you know, think about next week. We'd be talking about Kentucky at Florida as a game with playoff implications. I mean, for, for those fan bases, that's awesome. So what if a game between Michigan and Ohio state, wherein, you know, it's it's winner go home and they're both undefeated or something like that. So what if that's only to decide seating? That's still going to matter. And I can actually make the case, and it, it, even as someone who admittedly, I'm not the biggest pro expansion guy because I, I'm perfectly fine with the way that things are at four. But think about this. So last year, right, Georgia in that SEC championship loses. And then what did it really matter? They get to play in the SEC. They get to play in the college football playoff after losing to Alabama. Did, did their game change? Yeah. I mean, I guess they got to face Michigan instead of Cincinnati. All right. Didn't really make a difference in the grand scheme of things. It actually would have mattered more in the 12 team playoff had Georgia lost because think about this Georgia wouldn't have had the conference championship. So Georgia would have, instead of getting that first round bye, they would have had to play an extra game. 
And if you're having to play an extra game against a team like Oklahoma State or Baylor or Utah or these physical teams and you have to play against them in week one, even the, I shouldn't say week one, in the first round of the playoff, even though we would expect, obviously, Georgia to roll in a game like that, it could still be a very physical game that matters if you're trying to win a national championship and you have to win three consecutive games like that. That's the type of thing that can make a significant impact. So that by having that on the table is very significant in my opinion that will still value the regular season we need to we need to sell hope to more fans i thought tebow kind of hit the nail on the head talking about this in a sports center hit on saturday morning where he's talking about you need to be able to sell hope to more fan bases right now that's the biggest issue that college football is having is that it is such an exclusive party and even after this opening weekend you pretty quickly realize it's alabama it's georgia Eh, maybe it's Ohio State, depending on how you feel about the way that they kind of struggle against Notre Dame, albeit without Jackson Smith and Jake, but we'll wait and see what it looks like if and when he's able to make a full return. But you kind of are thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I guess there's only a few teams that can win a national championship. Sorry, Utah. Sorry, Oregon. You're not on that level. (laughs) You're just not. But it's not going to change who's going to win a national championship. That's not what the 12-team playoff is going to do. It's not going to all of a sudden reward teams that aren't worthy of it. It's going to make those games feel more significant. And that's the biggest thing right now that college football needs in a time when six teams have won a playoff game during the eight years of the system. That's it. That's it. That's crazy. And while I, I do think that there are you know, so many things that we want to hold on to with the regular season with college football. And I'm, I'm all for all of that. I do think that this is, this was inevitable with the money that's at stake. Everybody wants to be able to get a bigger piece of the pie. Pay for player is coming. That is what it is. And we can't do anything to control that. But I do think that the 12 team playoff and the way that it is going to be set up is going to, we will embrace it eventually. Even if we have our frustrations with it, even if we talk about the potential player safety issues, how they're going to work around that. I don't think they're taking conference championships off the table. I'm just going to say that right now. I don't. Uh, Maybe some conferences will. But then again, if you have declining home attendance, I don't necessarily think that you want to also knock off one game from your regular season schedule. That contract is going to be massive. It's going to have so many implications short and long term to it. But 12-team playoff is happening. If you're not crazy about it, good news for you is it's probably not happening until 2026. So you have plenty of time to be mentally prepared for that. What I do think this also impacts kind of quietly is I think the conference scheduling model. I think very soon we will see the SEC um, announce the the 366 model wherein they have the three permanent home, uh, three or not three permanent home, but the three permanent games in conference play and then the six rotating home and homes, which I kind of threw caution to when talking about how I was skeptical of the certainty of that without knowing what the college football playoff format was going to look like. Because when Greg Sankey came away from those meetings in January, it sounded like, man, there's no guarantee we switch from four to 12, even in 2026. They were that far divided, but the death of the Alliance is what opened the door up for all of this to change. If you're asking yourself, why did this change in the last seven, eight months? It's because the Big Ten added USC and UCLA and the death of the alliance and the inevitable inevitable possibility of this this playoff contract, this this TV money that's going to be coming that that opened the door for this. So I do think that'll impact the SEC. We've already seen the the Oklahoma, Texas early entry to the SEC is on the table with the Big 12 reportedly negotiating this new TV deal that would open them up if they're all of a sudden going to be able to make that money and Oklahoma and Texas can leave for the SEC. Who knows how that's going to play out as well. But a lot of things connected to this. I do hate that it happened opening weekend of college football. I think we make too much of the playoff in its current system. We'll make more of it when more teams are involved and that'll be fun and that'll be great. But I think we make too much of it now when there are only a few teams who can actually win a game in the playoff. I hate that it happened opening weekend in college football because we should be talking about actual football after an off season in which we felt like it felt like we talked about anything but that. So it was great to actually be able to talk about football today. This will have a massive impact on the sport, of course, uh, long-term, uh, the announcement, the timing of it just sucked. Didn't really like seeing that. And I'm probably not alone in saying that. 
Will will be back on the midweek pod when we record. We're going to record midweek pods on Wednesday. The pod will go up on Thursday. We're going to have a lot of different things to dissect. Oh, yeah, I didn't break down the UNC defensive performance in this podcast. Um, last I checked, Gene Chizik is 2-0, and and anybody that wants to tell me that any other stats matter, um, get off my lawn. I don't really care. Sorry. Um, yeah, that game was not great. I'm going to have to do a lot of spin zones for UNC this year. It's going to be really rough. Will and I were definitely texting during that, being like, Eugene's not about to lose this, is he? He's not. We, we, we hope he's not. Um, but yeah, we'll have a lot of stuff to talk about with a loaded week two slate in the SEC. It is really, really good. Tons of different things that we are going to be able to get to. Like I said, we will record that on Wednesday. The pod will go up on Thursday. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, subscribe, join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. 